Hi, you're listening to Coffee Talk. I am your host, Liv Alliston. We are currently in the middle of a series called Living with Open Hands, and this is just based on the premise of offering every area, every detail of our lives um, open-handed to God. There is a quote by Corey Tenboom that says, hold everything loosely in your hands. Otherwise it hurts when God pries your fingers open. And so that's basically the concept of this series that we're in right now. Um, last week, Austin uh, Stratton was one of our guests and she walked us through her journey of living with open hands in regards to your children and your family and your loved ones. And this week, we are actually continuing that conversation. Here is part three of Living with Open Hands with Austin and myself. The hardest times in my life have always been the times that I grow closer to the Lord. You can either run to Him or you can run away from Him. And And I've run to Him and it has always taken me even deeper. Yeah. I was talking to our daughter about that a while back, and um, I've mentioned her a lot, partly just because she is the one, she's my deep feeler. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is my deep feelings, which going into preteen years is not super fun. <laughs> Alarming. Um, but we talked about that really recently. Um, she had the opportunity to come along and um, help serve with a organization, a part of Young Life, mm-hmm. that... They only, their their whole ministry is special needs high school students. And so she got to come alongside and, and really pour in and really got to feel what sacrificial love felt like. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, she was just very, very broken by the whole thing. And we were talking a lot about her life and just the difficulties and the challenges and the challenges she's had to face of being an older sibling in that and the things she's had to come to terms with that I, I know she will still have to come to terms with as she ages. But something that I told her was, I said, honey, here's the deal. I said, you're 10. And I said, you're living this and you're having to learn what the Lord looks like in this. Everyone's going to have to do this one day. Mm-hmm. Your friends may be 30 or 40, but there will come a day you will be thankful mm-hmm. that you're learning this now. Yeah. And you're seeing what the Lord can do now. Mm-hmm versus spending 30 and 40 years going, well, everything's all hunky-dory and okay. And and we were meant, suffering is a part of this world. Right. It is. It, no one is above it. No one is going right. to avoid it. It's what do you do with it when it comes. Right. It, and it, through having gone through, you know, things that, you know, dark moments and then being drawn closer to the Lord from like, through that, I never would wish for those things no. to happen. But you become thankful I am. for I, those things. I would never in a million years wish the trials that we have gone through, that we have watched our friends go through. Because mm-hmm. like you said earlier, we've watched mutual friends go through some of the depths mm-hmm. of grief. Some of the most horrific feelings that a person can feel... But I know for me personally, I am thankful for every one of them mm-hmm. because I look at who the Lord has brought me to be and who he's brought me to be in him that would have never happened without But that's it. only through the grace of God. It, is, it doesn't it is make sense only, to be thankful for, no, that, it for doesn't. things that don't feel good. It doesn't make sense at yeah. all. Um, but it is. It is Like you said, it is only through the grace of God. And it is only through having built that relationship before mm-hmm. that the Lord is able to reveal who he is after. So... 
tell us a little bit about, I guess, your story. I, I think tried you not you might, to. I tried not to say too much <clears throat> about your testimony of how you, because I see you daily living with open hands, with specifically regarding the safety of your kids. Um, you know, I I will say I I grew up in a home that my parents were both believers. And, I mean, they'll tell you there were things they wish they'd have done differently, ways they'd have interacted differently. But one thing my mom taught me was God is always good and God is always sovereign. Mm -hmm. And she'll tell you now, we've had conversations about this, that how she viewed that concept back then versus how she views it now are very different. Because, you see, my mom grew up in a home where she had lost two sisters and a dad by the time she was 18. Oh, my goodness. Um. And that was something she always taught me, was God is always good and God is always sovereign. And I I understood it and I believed it. Mm-hmm. I didn't fully grasp what that felt like yeah. until I had children. Um, we, you know, we got married. We were able to have our first very quickly, very unexpectedly, um, which was a huge blessing. And when we had our second, we were super excited we had our daughter first and then we had our son Maddox and we had been living with my in-laws trying to save money for a house and that did not go the way that we planned it was a longer stay but it was still good my in-laws still liked me afterwards <laughs> by the grace of God it's always a plus <laughs> we survived um and we moved out and this is kind of where the beginning of my journey with this really where it really got set in stone was I mentioned earlier, our son drowned. He walked into my in-laws pool. He was 15 months old and he drowned. Um, he was dead when my mother-in-law pulled him out of the water by the grace of God, her nursing instincts kicked in. She did at least get him breathing by the time the paramedics arrived. Um, but without going into too many details, um, statistically children that are in the type of drowning he was in, um, less than 5% survive. Of children that are in the type of drowning he was in, 0.0015% of those children survive without brain damage. And he came out without either one. Mm-hmm. Um, our oldest watched him go in the water. She watched him drown. Um, so for every day after, after coming home, all day every day, she played it out. Mm-hmm. Um, to her, policemen were bad, firemen were bad, hospitals were bad because they hurt her brother. The night of his drowning, um, I can't tell you, I still cannot tell you, I wish I could, if someone gave me this scripture or I stumbled upon it, but um, there's a scripture in Ephesians, it's Ephesians 3.20, and I actually have a word from it tattooed on my wrist, and it says, now to him who is able to do above and beyond all we can think or imagine through the power at work within us, to him be all glory and honor and praise mm-hmm. in the church and in Christ forever, amen. In that moment... Reading that and reading to him who is able. Mm. We always kind of skim past that. We skim past that part. And it is to him who is able, Mm -hmm. not to him who does. Yes. It is, he is able. And for me in that moment, watching my son intubated, hearing, well, you'll get to take him home in seven to ten days and deal with the brain damage. Hearing and, and reading to him is able, who is able, be all glory and honor and praise. Meaning, I am not just going to praise him if he does. I'm going to praise him because he's able. Right. That 
started, that began the change for me. And that was, that night was hard enough and it, it rocked our family because we had to deal with a lot of pain, all of us. And what was worse was I came home to this three-year-old little girl who every, every single part of her life, everything we did was my brother went in the water and he drowned. And that was how she was living every day of her life. And we were praying over her and praying with her and praying for her and seeking the Lord and seeking counsel. And it wasn't fixing it. And eventually, and and this is, it was part of our story, was after much prayer and much consideration, we decided to do play therapy with her. I was, as a mom, going, "How, how can I not help her get through this? Is my faith not big enough, God? Why are you not breaking this in her? Why are mm-hmm. you, why her? Mm-hmm. No child should have to do that. Yeah. She's who told us what happened. And I remember sitting in my car, beating my steering wheel, just crying, screaming, going, it's just not fair. In that moment, it just did not feel very fair. Little did I know what he had planned for us next. <laughs> but in that moment, it did not feel fair. And I, we took her, and it was the best decision we could have made um, for her. That was really what began it for me. And then what was so sweet about that was when Maddox drowned, we, we started having to go, okay, who are the neurologists we'd want to see? Who are the therapists we'd want to see? Who would deal with a child with brain damage and helping him regain some of those skills, whatever they may be, whatever was lost? And unbeknownst to us, um, we had we had decided to try for our third child. We got pregnant. Um, my pregnancy was a little bit rocky. Didn't really know what was going on. Kind of non-specific issues. Mm-hmm. And then we had Briley, and Briley, we had Briley. She was born at 31 weeks, five days. And about a week after she was born, I remember sitting in the hospital, and I just something in my gut told me something was off. And I'd felt that way since she was born. I, it was a preemie. I was new to the preemie life. Um, all the NICU mamas out there know what I'm talking about. It is a it rocks your world because you're supposed to be able to take your baby home, yeah. and all of a sudden you can't. Yeah. And I remember it was a Wednesday night, and I I just Mark could kill me for praying this prayer, but I did. I said, Lord, if there's something else going on, just let us know. Just let us have the whole picture. Give us the whole picture. And I wake up the next morning, go to the hospital. Um, I'm in there with her off and on all day. I would go home. I would get put the other two down for a nap. And then I would come back up. And my mom and mother-in-law tag teamed um, taking care of the littles while I was at the hospital with Briley. And the next morning I wake up and they're like, hey, because she was born at 31 weeks, five days and not 32 weeks, We've got to do these standard routine tests. We have to do for all babies born prior to 32 weeks. It's hospital policy. But no big deal. Just something we've got to do. All right. Fine. Whatever. Come back. Doctors walk in and said, I'm so sorry. And come to find out she had had a stroke in utero. Um, I, fairly medically savvy for a lay person, did not even know that was possible. We started dealing with what was this going to look like. Brains are one of those mysteries of God that no matter how much we know about them, I don't think we will ever fully know what they are capable of and what they do. 
And when you have a child or anyone with brain damage, the conversation typically goes, this is, this is what we think might work, but we don't know. It, it has always got that we don't know caveat on it. Mm. And what was so beautiful about that was, though, when we got these test results back and, and we're trying to figure out what to do, I, I asked the doctors, I was like, hey, um, we've already got all the people for this. The, the thing I say to people is no human could have prepared me for a child with brain damage, mm-hmm. but God did. Yeah. I walked out of the hospital with one that was perfectly fine, only to walk into the hospital with one that had a hole in her head, that before she ever came into my home, a piece of her brain had died. And yet the Lord had already started paving the way for us in that. I mean, it, that to me still blows my mind. Yeah. And we, we started navigating that and it was a very hard mark. And I had a lot of really tense moments because as men, men are wired to fix things. When a man, when a husband, when a father has to go, you can't give me the tools to fix this. What do you do? And it, it was very hard for both of us because he wanted, he was willing to do whatever he needed to do, but there was nothing we could do. All we could do was begin the process of equipping her to be whoever God had for her to be. And we didn't know what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you met her now, she's spunky and fantastic she and mean is. as a pit viper. <laughs> she does have moderate cerebral palsy. She can walk and talk. Um, there are some social deficits and physical limitations that she struggles with. Um, she's struggled with pain most of her life. Mm-hmm. And, um, but in the grand scheme of things, she has done beautifully well, far exceeded expectations of, for her. But I remember back to the living with open hands about a year after she was born, I was never, I have to say, and some people might be skeptical of this statement. I was never angry with God mm-hmm. about all of that. I, I, I never was like, I, I never hit that point and this is for me personally, I never hit the point of going, I'm mad at you because this happened. But I did hit a point that I felt like somebody had taken a paintbrush and painted black paint over the picture of my life and my family. And I remember I would go to church every single week and we were all still in class together at the time. And I was mad that I was there. Not at God, just mad that I was there And I spent a year going, do I really believe what I say I believe? Mm -hmm. Do I really believe God is good? And do I really believe God is sovereign? Do I really believe that? Do I really believe what I'm preaching to my children every single day? Mm -hmm. Do I believe that? And it was a major reckoning of faith for me. Mm -hmm. And I... I challenge anybody that is going through a season like that, don't shy away from it. Push into it. Mm-hmm. Because I had to go so back to, this is what I know even about the history of Jesus and God and the Bible. And I mean, I had to go even that deep of going, okay, here's what I know factually before I could go into what I know with my heart. Right. But in that moment, I had a, a very sweet watershed moment where when I feel, was feeling like God had painted it, that, that someone, not God, that someone had painted a black paintbrush over my life. 
And God said, that was never my picture of your life. And I mean, you want to talk about a sucker punch between the eyeballs Mm. of realizing I am basing my grief on my perspective, Mm -hmm. not God's. Mm -hmm. And it, it forever changed the way I viewed my family and my children. It started with a lot of things before that, and it started with Maddox. But with Briley in that moment where I had to face, am I going to surrender to the Lord all in who he is, who he has designed me to be, or am I going to surrender to me? Mm. And I think that for me was really the beginning of living with open hands because when we nearly lost Maddox, and statistically we should have very easily lost Briley because um, the survival rate of in utero strokes, I had to learn that my children were never mine to begin with. Mm-hmm. They, they had been the Lord's always. I was entrusted them for a season. Forever long that season was, mm-hmm. I didn't get to decide that. So fast forward a couple of years later, um, we were done having children. <laughs> Uh, we'd bought me a new truck. It was great. <laughs> it fit all of our people. It was fantastic. We'd gotten in this kind of calm. Briley was doing really well. She was walking. She was starting to learn to talk. After having a conversation with a friend one day of, oh, yeah, you know, I think we're done. We're content. The Lord will have to literally dump a child in my lap if he wants me to have another one. <laughs> enter. <And> I, <laughs> enter surprise. <laughs> I find out I'm eight weeks pregnant with. Um, our fourth, which I don't take for granted the blessing that we were able to have four biological children. Um, I, I want to say that after having watched so many mm-hmm. um, friends and family battle infertility, that's something that Mark and I recognize we were truly blessed right. that that was not a struggle we had to navigate. Mm-hmm. But we got surprised with our fourth, super excited. Doctors like, hey, we're going to stay on top of this. We're going to do everything we can to prevent a premature birth. Because it's very common to have additional premature births if you already had one. Okay. Once your body's gone through that, it's it's very common. So he's like, we're going to do everything we can. In the midst of this, my one sister gets engaged to my brother-in-law, who I, I love and adore. He and I, we'd been friends before they started dating, so it was super fun. They dated for a long time. We'd much awaited, much anticipated um, his sister was expecting a baby, so we're going to have multiple pregnant bridesmaids. And I mean, just this whole picture and thing. And it was going to be so good and so sweet. And we come up to the week before the wedding, and I suspect that my water has broken. Uh, end up in labor that week. She's 31 weeks when I go into labor. And um, able to get the labor to- stopped, sent me home, was going to be on bed rest get home, put the kids to bed, and realize the labor is back. And my sister is getting married in seven days. My only sister. And I'm her maid of honor. We have been thick as thieves, um, polar opposites. But, I mean, I've waited my entire life for this. Yeah. And we'd plan the wedding thinking, oh, well, I'll go past the point I went to with Briley. It'll be fine. And I go to the hospital. Mark had gone to San Antonio that night for business meetings. He and his brother drove to San Antonio for meetings and turned around and drove back. Bottom line was she was dying in utero. And I remember hearing her heartbeat downstairs. By the time we made it to OR, which was less than two minutes, um, we were losing her quickly, very quickly. 
Mark was there. They crashed C-sectioned me. Um, we delivered her. And there were so many sweet things that happened that night. And I, I'm not going to get into all of them right now. Um, from doctors that let Adeline see her in the incubator that night, which was not the way they were supposed to go through the hospital to get her to the NICU, but they knew that might be her only chance to see her alive. Mm. Um, doctors that made that happen, nurses that stepped in and were living on us and our children. And we knew we had a very sick baby. And she was basically what they would call term is flaccid. So the only organ that was functioning independently on her body was her heart. She was so sick, they could not have her on a ventilator. Um, they had her on a machine called an oscillator. It is a step up. It's what they put their brain dead adult patients on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what you put a child on that their brain is not functioning enough to even allow their, their lungs to expand. Um, so they have to put microbursts of air in just to keep the blood oxygenated. Um, her brain was showing really no activity. Every organ was failing. One of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And the crazy thing for me was it wasn't as hard, I don't think, for me, but it was hard watching my husband mm. do this. We sat in the hospital room day two. We were in the room. I was recovering from a C-section. And we sat and we said, Lord, whatever time we get with her, she's yours knowing unless something changed drastically we had maybe a few days left and that was it and then we had to go home and I thought about this so much when Alexa lost their baby having to go home and face going home without our baby mm-hmm. and sitting in the hospital room saying Lord We give her back to you knowing you may not give her to us. We may not get to keep her. Was one of the most painful things I have ever had to do. Saying, Lord, I trust you even if I do not understand you right now. Because I didn't. I did not understand in that moment why... Why would Lord the Lord put my children through that? Yeah. I could face it for me. I could face that for me as an adult. I, I was at a point in my faith that I knew God was going to restore me no matter how broken I was. But having to face the thought of going home and telling my seven-year-old daughter I'm not bringing your baby home. It wrecked me. And I mean, I will say we were one of the fortunate ones. We were. Now, we live in a world that would not consider us fortunate having two disabled children. But we were one of the fortunate ones. Yeah. And in the sweet, the day after Mark and I did that, I um, talked to the head of the NICU, who I'd known with Briley. He was the one that had delivered the news to us about Briley. And I asked him, point blank, I said, I need to know, have you ever sent a baby home that was this sick? Because on top of having massive, massive brain bleeds and a a body that was no longer functioning, she also had um, bacterial meningitis. Wow. And that for a preemie is very, very life-threatening and very few survive it. 
And I said, have you ever sent a baby home this sick? I said, I just need to know. And he said, no. And over 30 years of doing this, I've never sent one home that was this sick. And I said, okay. And Mark and I were going to tell the kids that day. And I asked one of the NICU nurses, I said, hey, how do you know? How do you know when you tell them? Because I was really struggling through, I don't want to tell the children before it's time. I don't want to lay that burden on them before it's time. They knew their sister was sick. They knew she was too early. They understood that. They did not understand the depth of depths of things. Right. And this sweet, sweet nurse who I'll ever forever be grateful for um, said, you're going to have to tell them, but today is not the day. And I said, okay. I went back to my room, and I sat in my room, and I cried, and I prayed, and I cried, and I prayed, and went back again to what Mark and I had done the day before and said, okay, Lord, I'm going to love her for whatever time I have her. I'm going to share and enjoy and love her for whatever that looks like. And while I'm sitting there in the bed, the most annoying song on the face of the planet popped into my head. (laughs) I'm sitting there, and any of you who have grown up in the church or had children in the church have probably heard the song, My God is so big and so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. Mm -hmm. And we teach that in children's Sunday school, and I sat there, and that is all that was in my brain, and I'm going, really? This is not the right time. And the Lord spoke as audibly as he has ever spoken to me and said, Do you really believe that? If you're going to teach your children that, Mm -hmm. do you really believe there is nothing my God cannot do? And I woke up after taking a nap. I walked back in her hospital room. And as I walked back in, this sweet baby who had not moved for three days, um, the nurse yelled down the hallway, "She's, she's moving. And I thought they're moving her out of the unit because she's dying. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, what do you mean she's moving? And she said, she's moving. And with tears streaming down my face, I walk back there and I see her little feet starting to move. Aww. And, you know, like I said, we, we were one of the fortunate ones in that moment that the Lord did allow us to take our daughter home. Um. One thing that we had to face, though, before we got to that point, that day that Mark and I were, were dealing with all of this together, um, I I had found out that day that she was positive for bacterial meningitis. And I was, I, I knew that was probably the nail in the coffin for her, literally. And Mark didn't fully understand what that meant. And I, I asked him, I said, are you prepared for me to explain this to you? And I did. And he looked at me and he said, If she comes home and cannot do anything the rest of her life, I'm okay with that. And watching someone that God designed to want to fix things surrender to the Lord and say, if this is nothing I can ever fix for her, but but we get to share in her life, I'm okay with that. The Lord moved mountains in that moment. Because when we did bring her home, she couldn't do anything. She didn't cry. She didn't laugh. She didn't smile. She couldn't eat on her own. She couldn't do anything. I didn't know what she needed. I didn't know if she would ever know if I left her. If she would ever know what it was like to feel pain. You don't ever want that for your child. You, you don't ever think about, I want them to be bumped and scraped and bruised. But when you're looking at a child going, I don't know if she's ever going to be able to feel the good and the bad 
that that God gives us on this earth. I was so, I just felt helpless. After all we'd been through and that, and we got to bring her home and then I'm looking at her. I remember looking at her on the floor, laying there. She couldn't look at me. We knew at the time she couldn't see me. We knew she could hear me, but there was no response. And learning to love again, going, Lord, I don't know how to do this. She's, she's yours. You're going to have to show me. You're going to have to equip me. You're going to have to prepare me for this because I can't do this. I don't know how to do this. And when you get to that point, and it is only in God's grace that you get to that point, I could have never gotten there on my own. Mm-hmm. When you get to that point is when I, I believe you truly get to see the grace of God. Because I go and I pick up that baby who is, again, exceeding expectations. But she's still totally dependent upon me. I mean, she is as dependent upon me as though she were an infant. And Mark and I have even talked about that, you know, our friends who've had kids at the same time, they've grown past us. Clark was born. He, they were, they were our, born. They were supposed to be two months uh-huh. apart. They were supposed to be. And they were like, how? What's her birthday? Uh, she's April 29th. He's April 13th. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they. There was a group of us that were all pregnant at the same yep. time. We've got a picture. It's hanging all, on my wall in my house yep, of all, all of us. Bumps. Everybody, everybody is still pregnant, but me. And I'm standing there mm-hmm. in the middle of all of you, and y'all are all praying over me. And it is, it is still such a sweet moment for me. Because y'all loved us through that. And I, I will say with loving people with open loving with open hands, that is something that is hugely valuable and that is when you've developed your relationship with the Lord, but you've also surrounded yourself with a community of like minded believers. Yes. I think it it is where calling to bear each other's burdens comes into mm-hmm. play. Yep. Because when we are bearing each other's burdens, it is when we are free as individuals, I believe, to learn how to love with open hands, to learn how to surrender because the Lord has given those people to come alongside of us. They can't feel for us. They can't suffer for us. But they can bear with us. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I do believe that is one of the things that has given us the ability to learn, given me the ability to learn how to love with open hands. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just, it, it's those sweet reminders, it's the text messages, it's the songs, it's the prayers, it's the when I don't have words to pray in that moment, when I am so broken that I can't even come up with the words to say, with what to pray, with what to ask for from the Lord, there are people that are asking it on my behalf. Yes. And that, that is, that is an invaluable component, I think, mm-hmm. that surrounding yourself with like-minded believers it doesn't mean it's a perfect community. It's not. It's never going to be. But when you do that and those storms do come, I think it makes it a lot easier to be able to open your hands up and go, okay, Lord, 
You were already preparing us. Yeah. Well, it's like um, Moses, when the Israelites were fighting, and he, when he was standing up on the mountain, he had um, her, her, is that his name? Yes. And Aaron holding up his arms. And whenever his arms were held up, yes. the, the Israelites would be winning. And when he would lower his arms, it's when the enemy was... would start to defeat mm-hmm. them. And they were there holding up his arms for mm-hmm. the entire duration of the battle. And you know they won, um, but he could not have done that on his own. No. He needed that, that community. And that's one thing that we've mentioned with the, um, that we've talked about a lot, Drew and I, after our miscarriage, was we had community. I mean, we were all in the same like yeah. life group, you know, class together. But then, and we were close, but when you don't go through anything, then there's only a certain level of yes. closeness that you have. And so when we lost the baby, I mean, everyone just surrounded us. And, I mean, people came and prayed with us before I went to the hospital. And, like, I mean, just amazed. Like, I, our, our relationships were completely deepened with oh, one yeah. another. And that fuels your faith in God as well. It does, because I think you see, Lord, you were preparing us. Yeah. You had bolstered us before this. Right, right. Before we ever got here. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what we were going to need in that moment, and yet you did. Yeah. And that goes back to just trusting he is good Mm -hmm. and trusting that he is sovereign. And the only way to do that is to press into him. Yes. To seek him continually and consistently. Even when you don't feel it. Yes. Because there are plenty of days that I open up my Bible and I'm like, "Mm, yep, I'm not not here today. I'm not feeling it today. Yeah. But that consistency and that... I'm going to still work through this mm-hmm. is when that relationship with the Lord deepens. Yeah. Because again, it's that whole, our feelings, our feelings are for a purpose, but they are often misleading. And yeah. if we live our life based on that is when we will walk away from the truth and mm-hmm. from the Lord and from his word, mm-hmm. because as, as hokey as it may sound, for scripture talks about the truth sets us free. Yeah. And you have to know that truth before you get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that when you, like, he gives you, as you press in him, as you seek him, he's the one that sustains, like, he gives us the faith to believe in him. Yes. He's the one that sustains our faith. And so as you continue to press in him and be faithful in that he is faithful Mm -hmm. to, I mean, he's faithful regardless of if we are faithful, but in this, he, as we continue to press in, he is faithful to strengthen our faith, to deepen our trust in him. Like he gives us to equip us for those moments of, and I I will tell the story. I'm a little hesitant to tell it. Um, just because it's not, it's partly my story. It's partly not, but the day that Maddox drowned, um, he was with my mother-in-law that day. And like I said, she's the one that pulled him out of the water. And we got to the hospital that day. And it was where that you're talking about when you when you are surrendering to the Lord ahead of time. And then the Lord provides what you need in that moment. Right. I remember standing in the hallway of the hospital that night. And my mother-in-law was, was devastated. And... I know she went through a lot of, of grieving and we went through a lot of grieving together of how it happened and why it happened. And it wasn't, it was a pure accident. It wasn't anything she could have done or changed. But I remember she was standing in the hallway with me. 
but just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And all I could think to say was, you saved my baby. Mm-hmm. If you had not been there, if it had been anyone else in our family, he would not be here right now. Yeah. It was because of you being there with him that he's here. Yeah. That we even have the chance to be having this conversation. It is because of you that he is here. And I believed that. I still believe it. With every fiber of my being, I thank God every single day that she is the one that was there with him. But a nurse stopped me right after that happened. She'd apparently been watching this whole exchange. And she stopped me and she looked at me and she goes, how could you do that? Because I never could have forgiven my mother-in-law for that. And in that moment, I saw the difference in what grief and trial and struggle looks like with the Lord versus without. Yes. Because to me, that was as natural a feeling as I've ever felt of, thank God you were the one that was there. Mm -hmm. And yet a world sees you broke it. And it, it's a it, fear, fear-based response. It is. It's a fear-based response, and it is one that is not based in truth. Yeah. Because truth doesn't mean we always are going to understand, but the truth of God is always good and always for our good. Yes. Whether we understand it or not. Mm-hmm. So that concludes part three with Austin on living with open hands with regards to your children and their safety, um, and, uh, welfare. And coincidentally, um, as soon as Austin and I finished recording this segment of the podcast, um, I had some family in town because it was my youngest son, Luke's, uh, first birthday. And, I called my husband and he didn't pick up the phone, which is not abnormal because, you know, he's surrounded with his family and I was supposed to meet them all for dinner. And I had a, just a weird feeling in the pit of my stomach, uh, that something just wasn't right. And so I kept calling his phone and then I started calling his family member's phone and, um, I received a call back and I couldn't understand what he was saying. And, um, it's because he was, he was weeping And uh, apparently, while Austin and I were finishing up this episode, my youngest son had choked on a blueberry and uh, just a freak accident. Um, And uh, my mother-in-law was feeding him and she noticed that he he was not breathing. Um, And so she got everyone's attention. And thankfully, my brother-in-law is a doctor and, um, you know, he just started you know, hung him upside down and just started like beating on his back to get this blueberry dislodged and nothing was working. And Luke, uh, turned blue and went limp and started to pass out. And, um, you know, my brother-in-law said, you know, call 911 because he's not going to make it. Um, so my husband felt led to just start sweeping his throat, which you're not supposed to do apparently, uh, because it can further dislodge whatever is in there. But he did it anyway. And he started sweeping his throat and he managed by the grace of God to pull out the blueberry. And my son began breathing and regained consciousness and the color came back to his skin. And so, um, I just 
find it so interesting that as I'm talking to Austin about surrendering to God and trusting him with our children, that my child was at the moment almost dead. Um, and so I, I praise God that, that he allowed him to live through that. But my husband and I, uh, my husband specifically, because he was the one that was witnessing everything, he had to, we both had to get to a place of if he, yes, he, he was able to rescue him. And yes, he did, in fact, save him. But if he didn't choose in that moment to save him, just like you know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel, with God is able to save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, he is still good. And that is the place that we had to get to of even if God chose to not save my son in that moment, we had to recognize and choose to believe that he is good, even if our circumstances are bad. And even if things don't go the way we want or the way we plan or the way we hoped or the way we prayed, he is still good no matter what. And he is still enough. So I want to thank you again for, uh, for listening as Austin and I have shared our hearts on this uh, matter and our experiences, uh, testimonies with this. Um, Next week, uh, we're going to continue in our Living with Open Hands series. So please tune in. Thank you so much. And you have been prayed for.